0: Today on the podcast, we have Steph Wah. Um, Steph is a former search and rescue technician with the Canadian Forces. And we're going to be chatting about his course, you know, kind of getting into the forces, the Canadian Forces, his course, some of the postings and missions he was on. And then he finished his time in SAR teaching at the SAR school. So we'll have a bit of a chat about the differences from when he went through to when he, when he taught. So welcome to the podcast, Steph. Thank you very much, Mark. And uh, I guess, why do we start with a little bit about you? Like, why don't you give us a little rundown about who you are and what you do now?
1: Cool. Uh, well, of course, name is Stefan. Uh, so was born in October 70, joined the military in uh, September of 88, pretty much right after high school. Uh, joined infantry. That didn't work out. So got injured, went uh, for a stint as an administrative clerk for eight years. Got posted to Germany in Lahr for four, then went to the ships HMCS Athabaskan for a couple of years there, uh, where I decided to uh, go back to my dream job and apply for search and rescue. Uh, got selected for the 1998 course, or the uh, what we call the SARC 33 course. Uh, We were the first course in the new school that's uh, presently at the base, uh, the Cyril Young building. Uh, We were the first of many things, the first year long course. Uh, The courses went from eight months uh, before me to uh, 11 months uh, started in 98. Uh, So we did that after the graduation in July of 99, I got posted to 424 in Trenton did a posting of five years there, and then after that went to combat support with 439 uh, Squadron in Bagotville with the Griffins. Uh, did a four-year stint there, then went to 413 in Greenwood, and uh, until 2012 where I got posted to the SARS school for the first time as a uh, instructor. From there, went to the shop as a deputy STL, took over as the STL, and then in 2016, got posted back to the school as the senior instructor slash standard guy. And I released in
0: 2017. Uh, wow. Uh, yep. I've got a few questions about some of this because, um, one, I'm really curious. And two, there's people around the world that do listen to this podcast. It's quite amazing. Um, so you mentioned that the school was the first time it went from 8 to 11 months in 1998. What did they add to the training to make it 11 months long?
1: Uh, in those days, uh, we, in the old school days, uh, when I was a new guy, these guys were old school, uh, the primary uh, teachings in those days, the medical was very basic. They only had, I don't want to say only, but they had a, uh, an advanced first aid their med bag was uh, probably the size of a, a big lunchbox, um, with and uh, in those days they could do uh, the I lost the word here thoracostomy, you know, cut the throat. That was pretty much the advanced medical skill that they had with uh, at the time. Um, so that expanded the the course right there, and they also added a ground search portion. And they, uh, they made like uh, mountain ops a little longer, final ops a little longer. Uh, and they also added, I think, ground operations at the time uh, also. So a few extra phases, sea survival was added because prior you had to, you would graduate, then you would go back to sea uh, survival school. You would go back to the Arctic training. So in 1998, all this was part of the, the QL5 training
0: okay um so what i mean you've just listed a whole bunch of stuff like from sea survival to medical training to gsar to mountain ops to arctic what 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 programs are inside of that 11 months now like what does that school consist of or i guess when you went through we'll talk about the new school in a little bit when you went through what were all the parts of that
1: so when I went when I went through the school in '98, uh, we started with ground operation. At the time, we didn't have a selection to uh, to bring candidates in, and uh, so it was once you were selected on paper you were a SARTEC, you were on the course. Uh, so paper selection was big at the time. You started with operations phase, we'd go to Jarvis in the fall, and that's where we learn all the ground stuff, the operations with the, the boats and quads and everything that has to do with land operation. Of course, the land survival, single man phase and all that, which is now part of the selection. Okay. After that, we went straight into uh, the medical phase, which at the time, We were doing a modified ACLS course with some of the advanced life support um, procedures. It was a 10-weeks phase, and that took us all the way to December. After Christmas break, we hit the Arctic, and then from there, we went to dive phase at uh, at And From there, I believe we went to... um, the um, sea survival, that was part of that. We had the dunker course in Halifax uh, for ditching drills. Then para-ups was done here in Comox uh, for six weeks. And then uh, we had mount, mountain-ups, ground-ups in uh, back in Jasper and Jarvis Lake with the final operations uh, at the end of the year, which was a couple weeks of Everything from the start uh, amalgamated in all kinds of different scenarios. So jumping in the woods, you know, taking care of, uh, of mock-ups, and we would finish the whole thing with a great big major air disaster exercise and a big party after that.
0: Wow. Okay. So I've got a couple questions here. Where did you do the Arctic phase? Resolute Bay, Crystal City. All right. And I kind of knew the answer. I just wanted to make sure. Just for the listeners overseas, Canada is a, a fairly large country. And when Steph's talking about this, like the schools in Comox are going to Jasper to do stuff. They're going to Halifax to do stuff. They're going to Resolute. Between Comox and Halifax, just looked it up, is 5,900 kilometers, 3,700 miles. And Resolute is probably two or 3,000 kilometers north of what most people look at in Canada. So, I mean, you basically hit from the Pacific to the Arctic to the Atlantic doing this program.
1: Yeah, you do. We used to call it the Great Canadian Pop Call.
0: <laughs> of course you did.
1: Yeah. And, um, and through, throughout my career, I have achieved a pretty uh, pretty uh, interesting goal. I've actually stayed, partied, and slept in every province, territory in Canada.
0: <laughs> That's not bad. Um, so um, you graduate after the program. Uh, after 11 months, and you're posted to 424 Trenton, which is Ontario for our listeners out there. You spent five years there, and now Sartex in Canada work on different airframes. So I'm gonna ask you as the question, when you went to Trenton, what airframes did you use there?
1: So in Trenton, I was on the Hercules Hercules aircraft, which is a fixed wing. And at the time we had the Labrador helicopter, uh, the double blade helicopters. Uh, so that's what I flew on there. I actually, the day I got posted out of Trenton was the day of the retirement of the last Labrador helicopter, which was eventually replaced by the Comrades. Uh, so that's what I flew when I went the when I was in Trenton.
0: Wow, and you're probably talking an older series of the Herc too, aren't you?
1: <laughs> yes, the old the old uh, models, absolutely.
0: So, um, and so, just for the listeners out there. What would you do on a fixed-wing aircraft as a SAR tech, opposed to what you would do on a helicopter as a SAR tech? Like, what different skill sets and mission sets would be assigned to those aircraft?
1: Yeah, no problem. Uh, so on a fixed wings, uh, doesn't matter which type of fixed wings uh, that we have. Like now, uh, the new um, Kingfisher that's going to be up and coming. The job is basically the same. It's all about uh, getting somewhere fast and a long distance, uh, and also. Uh, all of it is airdroppable. So pretty much everything that's inside the fixed wing, we can rig and we can attach parachute to it and we can airdrop to to people in distress and need. Uh, It doesn't need to be medical or, you know, plane crash. It could be somebody that's lost uh, that just needs a little bit of food to get them through the storm that stopped them. So we have camping kits, we have food and water kits, we have, uh, life rafts, survival kits for the ocean and uh, people that are sinking their boats. We have pumps that we can drop by parachutes. Uh, We have toboggans with extra medical gear if we have a major air disaster scenario. Of course, we have all our survival gear if we have to jump out and camp uh, with with patients. Uh, So it's all about getting there fast, getting there uh, with a lot of gear. Uh, another big job that the fixed wings have also is uh, it's called top cover, and for the coastal area, Comox is one. Gander and Greenwood on the east coast is the other. If our helicopters have to go more than fifty miles off uh, shore. Uh, Then they have top cover, Uh, the Herc follows the helicopter for the primary reason as a backup if uh, the chopper was to have to ditch in the ocean and also to provide a a communication platform. And if it's at night, they provide lighting. We have uh, big flares that will create uh, shadows and horizon for the helicopters to have something for visual clues when they do night hovers over boats or over uh, the water for for, uh, missions.
0: Okay, and so opposed then to the helicopters, that's more going to be tight areas and winching, I assume. Totally, yeah. Uh,
1: low and slow, we used to say with the lab, but Cormoran's a little faster, but still slower. Uh, yeah, everything that has to do with actual pickup. So you know, the, your what we like to call your typical mission is get there fast with the uh, fixed wing, jump in if needed, need to be, then the chopper will be, you know coming from behind and they'll have a crew of Sartex. They have also uh, lots of gears. Uh, Then they'll they'll do the recovery and the transport to the hospital because it's hard to park a Herc down the helipad. A little bit of
0: a problem trying to land in some of those cities. Oh, yeah. Um, Then from Trenton, you went to Combat Service Support um, Squadron in Bagotville. Bagotville, for the listeners, is in Quebec. So the province immediately east of Ontario, it's our French-speaking province. And can you explain the difference between the more, I'm, I'm going to use air quotes here because it's not co- technically correct, but I think you'll see where I'm going, the more humanitarian mission out of Trenton versus the more combat service support mission out of Hill.
1: Yep. Um, so we have what's called primary search and rescue and secondary search and rescue units. So the big squadron like 424 is a primary uh, search and rescue. They're 24-7, man, nonstop, doesn't matter. Uh, combat support squadron like Bagotville, uh, Code Lake, and Goose Bay, are uh, their main mandate is to be up and running when the F-18s are doing training flights. So we are there for the jets. That's the primary uh, mission. Secondary star unit. Uh, if needed, they'll be called upon. There's no immediate uh, response time. So they'll call the unit. They'll say, uh, you know, Trenton is up and they're going to need help. Can you guys be av- available starting tomorrow morning? So it gives us time to pick up a crew and uh, make sure that everything's fine. And then we'll fly to where, where it's needed to support as a second- secondary SAR asset. Uh, some units take it upon themselves to... Uh, uh, to have a better SAR response, especially locally. In Obaga deal, we had a little bit of understanding with the local uh, law enforcement, uh, which is non-typical usually. Uh, might not even be there. I don't know still what they're doing over there since I left, but uh, uh, so that's the big difference between a primary and a secondary SAR unit.
0: Okay, and what platforms are you running in the uh,
1: CSS they're using the uh, Griffin helicopter.
0: So that's uh, for civilian listeners. Think of like a four twelve, basically. That would be the closest equivalent. Yep. So, um, and what were the limitations you found with that helicopter, or did you? Was it a good platform to work off of? What are your thoughts?
1: Uh, <laughs> the uh, the Griffins are to my. Uh, my beliefs and my experience, Griffins are not a good search and rescue helicopter. We make it work, like we make everything work in the Kenyan forces, uh, but we've had a lot of issues, especially with the hoist at the time. Uh, and you know, when the money's not there, when you're not the primary sources, well, they don't, you are not usually in a big rush to help fix the problems. Uh, so, uh, but it came upon when, uh, When up starfish came up, when the cormorants were broken down in Trenton, they decided to replace them with the griffins. Well, all of a sudden the griffin is used in a primary uh, search area, then they start fixing the issues. Uh, It is still a weak helicopter for search and rescue. The the, uh, mass is prone to overtorque a lot. So we're very uh, restricted on what we can bring inside that helicopter uh, and the range of fuel also. Uh, so it was very, uh, very limiting capacity, but you no, know, it's better than nothing. And we made it work. We've had some pretty interesting uh, missions with it. So, Right on.
0: So from Bagotville, you went to Greenwood and that's Nova Scotia, I believe, correct? It is. Yep. So you've gone Trenton's more in, and Quebec are non-coastal. Uh, there is coast, but for all intents and purposes, they're not coastal Provinces, Nova Scotia is. So this, I take it, you're probably doing more missions out to sea.
1: Yeah. And just like anything else, yeah, you got the old uh, hit and miss, right? I did my five years in Trenton. I uh, only have one operational jump and oh. maybe two, three real missions. And then when I got posted to uh, Greenwood, I pretty much ticked the boxes for all the different missions in my first six months that I got there. Uh, so it was pretty fun. I got to hoist on cruise ships uh, on lobster boats, shrimp boats. Uh, you know I got to see an actual lobster vessel, sink right under my eyes after we picked up the three guys. Uh, fuel barge sank right under us uh, after we picked up the guys. So we it's pretty interesting what you get to see uh, over the big bad ocean.
0: Well, let's let's take a quick segue here into that with some of the missions and um, obviously this year it would have been cormorant. Uh, lab should have been out by then, I take it. Sorry. This would have been the cormorant you were hosting off, cormorant. you were host half of it uh, that point.
1: Yes, when I was in Nova Scotia, yeah, it was the cormorant.
0: All right. Um, could you just give us a rundown of one of those missions like what that looks like call coming in, responding, whatnot?
1: Sure. Um the one interesting one that I've done with a good friend of mine, his name was Berger or uh, Bergeron. Uh, we got called for a um, a boat that was that ran aground. Uh, so we showed up there it was uh, middle of winter, January at night. Everything was iced up, pitch black. There was no moon at all. Uh, we showed up in this fully loaded lobster boat, like we're talking. He was loaded to the max. Uh, ran aground on the shoal and he was maybe 50 to 60 meters from this island. Uh, it's a route that the captain used to take every you know, every time he was very familiar, decided not to use his GPS that night and ran ashore. Um, so, oh, some, some alarm's going, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, so we showed up and everything was iced up. So we had to bring the three crew people on top of the wheelhouse and got them off from there. And then uh, as soon as I got back up into the comrade, uh, we turned around to make our way back to shore and the boat actually disintegrated uh, right under our eyes. Uh, So needless to say that the three three fishermen were pretty happy to have been picked out. The Coast Guard was in their boats standing beside us, maybe uh, like a hundred meters back. There's no way these guys could come in. Uh, the sea was too rough, and they have no idea of what was underneath, uh, you know, for shoreline and stuff. So they just uh, they stay there and supported us as much as they could. Uh, what made that hoist interesting is when you hoist at sea or in a lake uh, on a boat, you follow the waves, and we can time the wave. There's always. Uh, a little period where the it's a little calmer, and that's why we try to get on the boat at that time or work the extraction at that time. With a boat like that, that was uh, run aground, uh, there's no such timing. It's at the mercy of all the waves coming in. So it was pretty uh, hard on the body going up with the wave and then smashing right down on the rocks. There was nothing smooth about it. Uh, yeah, knees took a little bit of a shit kicking that night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um-
0: when you're going down onto a mission like that, what are you wearing? Like, what's the uh, what's the outfit or the personal protective equipment that you'd be, you know, encased in and wearing in that situation?
1: So when we go over uh, over water, we uh, Sartex in the back. We uh, at that time we used to wear our dry suits. Uh, now they have the option of donning a, a survival suit or a surface swimming suit, which is uh, a little more comfortable but not by much Uh, so dry suits for us is what we wear Uh, we use it for hoisting we use it just in case we have to ditch in the water Uh, same thing with the front end they all they're also wearing uh, protective protective suits just in case we have to ditch in the water okay um
0: what is your comm system when you're going down to the vessel and signals and signals so Yeah, with, I, I suppose with those types of winds and weather, radio doesn't really help 100% anyways.
1: <laughs> there is a there is a system that we've tried, uh, you know, been out for five years, so I don't know if they, they brought it back or something better, but there was a system that we had to connect into our Motorola's at the time, and it would come into our, uh, our uh, hearing device inside the helmet. But every time you tried to speak, all they would hear was the, you know, the, the wash and the, the the engine from the helicopter. So that didn't last too long. Uh, hand signals works at night, works at day. Uh, you know, they're very well established. They're very safe and uh, very efficient. So we, we stay with hand signals.
0: Right on. So from Greenwood, you got posted to, back to Comox, to the SAR school for your first stint there. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And how was that going back? Like had the course changed much? I mean, we're looking at, you said five, four, four. You're talking, what, 13
1: years later at that point? Uh went back five, nine. Yeah, just about that. So yeah, it, uh, a lot of things had changed, but a lot of things were still very similar. So, you know, from an eight to 11 month course, uh The medical program was shifted to what we had to what it is now. So uh, the PCP program, which is well-established now, uh, everything else was just mostly massage and adapted uh, and and, uh, refined, if I can say that. So everything was much smoother than uh, than when I was in. Also the big difference was now that we, uh, when I came back is there was the selection process in uh, in late january february where we go to jarvis lake where we go to edmonton first meet the candidates they're usually 30 to 40 that we uh that got picked a couple days in edmonton for uh, logistic and uh, some basic uh instruction then we take them to our world in jarvis lake uh, where uh, every sartek is born and uh, we take them there for two weeks And uh, from there, they get ranked. All the ones that stay till the end and that actually pass, they got ranked uh, from one to whatever. And depending on the year, on on average, we used to take 12 uh, SARTEX for the course. Uh, Now, because of numbers and everything, they're picking more 14 to 16 uh, for the year. So that was the big difference there. The selection was the big difference. The medical program was the big difference, and everything else was ironed out, which was fine.
0: All right. Um, once they make it through selection, I mean, that's sounds like where you're making your cuts. Does the is the pass rate fairly high on the eleven month course, or do you still lose students in the program?
1: Okay. Uh, uh, so when the selection people from Ottawa came and they tried to uh, infiltrate or not infiltrate, but you know, get, get involved with our stuff. Uh, at that time, we had the um, highest success rate for the course itself, which proved that our selection process was very efficient. Um, on average, what people that we would lose on the course were injuries and maybe a, a failure for an exam uh, during med phase and the rest of the year, it's very rare that we would have failures. So 9 out of 10 would be injuries.
0: Okay. And now can they recourse if they're injured, or do they start again from selection?
1: No, they recourse now.
0: Okay. Yeah. So the selection is doing its job then in weeding out and identifying people that are going to be successful in the program.
1: Oh, absolutely. Totally. Because uh, on my course, uh, we were twelve. And it was a paper selection, like I mentioned earlier. And we had a guy, we never say his name, but he was number 12 and failed PT tests on day one. Uh, so, and then he retried, said uh, two days after, and failed again and got kicked off course right, right away, right? So, that means that whoever was 13 on the list could have been there. Because if there's one thing you can be prepared for is your PT test. Especially in this trade, that's the only thing you have real uh, control over. So, uh, you know, it was a little bit disappointing that this guy showed up unprepared.
0: Oh, absolutely. uh,
1: So the selection now fixes that. If you come to selection and you fail the PT test, you're sent home right away. You go back to your trade. So if you came in from the Navy, you go back to your boat. And that's another nice thing is... Uh, when I went on my course, I was already remastered or changed from admin to Sartek. So if I failed that, my trade was actually closing at the time. There was no more admin uh, clerks. So I had nowhere to go if uh, if I would have failed the Sartek course. It probably would have just kicked me out of the mill there.
0: Ah, and I didn't think about that, but you bring up a good point for people that are out there. You can come from any element then and go to SARTEC. You can come from Navy, Army, or Air Force and remuster? Totally, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's a bit interesting as well. That's probably a lot of people don't realize. Uh, is there still a requirement to do an X number of years in your um, initial MOC or military occupational career before you can transfer to SARTEC?
1: Yes, you still have to do four years.
0: Okay. Um, and then after SAR school, you went to 442, which is Comox on the West Coast, if I remember correctly. It is. yep. Yeah. And you did. You said you were a team lead in Comox. And what does that entail then, moving up the, the ranks there and becoming a team leader?
1: So uh, I was the, the deputy SAR tech lead, which is the 2IC of the shop, uh, mm-hmm. which is basically taking care of uh, discipline and administratives for for the boys in the shop. And then I did that job until uh, the actual STL at the time put his release in. Then I became the boss for about a year and a half. And that was probably, yeah, that was, I got to say, the most rewarding uh, part of my career was to, you know, work for these guys and make sure that they had everything they needed to do their job and, you know, meeting their families and working for them. That was. one of the highlights of my career, other than actually saving somebody's life, that was a very close second behind.
0: Right on. And so what does a shop consist of when you say the shop? Like, what are we talking about at a four-four-two? Like in Comox.
1: So four-four-two is a uh, as it stands right now. It's a thirty-man shop, but that includes our uh, the riggers, the supplies, the team tea members, team leaders, uh, Sartex, of course. Uh, uh, yeah, and the operational never stops. And here in Comox, they also have OTF for the uh, Comrade helicopter. So it's the operational training flight, which we have to man. Uh, so all the new pilots, the new FE being trained on the Comrade, you know, after a certain level, they need Startex to do the rest of the training. So all the uh, actual search and rescue. Uh, so that's the, the boss's job to make sure that people are at the right place at the right time.
0: You bring up a, something that just kind of spurred a thought in my process, like obviously as the boss, there must be quite a few research that a SAR tech has to do throughout a year. So is that true? Uh,
1: research, uh, if not, not really a research, but uh, to maintain your qualification. So if you let something go, then you have to re-qualify with a training program. The uh, there We have two real research that we have to do. One is your medical every two years. Yeah, that's. And then uh, the other one is your parachuting qualification. So if you get go out of trade, like when I went to combat support at the time we were not holding level one or level two uh, parachute qualification. So when you come back in the operational world, you have to do a parachute requalification. When you go outside, you just drop to a, a level one which gives you the right for open field parachuting only. Then, when you come back in the operations, you do uh, your research, then it brings you back to your in the water at night with gear, confined space uh, qualifications.
0: Just a tangent conversation what are you jumping with? What kind of shoots?
1: Uh, Right now, they still have the uh, uh, CSAR 7, which is a seven cell. Sport parachute, it's a big sport parachute. When I started, we had the CSAR-4, which was a big, uh, we, we used to call it a big truck because you you could really go slow and come straight down with the heavy weights in it. Uh, some disadvantage of the old canopy that we had was, especially a light guy like myself, uh, with a little bit of wind, I would go backwards. So I'd have lots of uh, backward landings. Uh, With the new parachute that we have now, it has a forward speed of 25 kilometers an hour. So it's able to take a lot more wind, uh, a lot more maneuverable and a lot safer. So uh, that's the big difference with the parachutes we have now.
0: Right on. Um, What other qualifications does a SARTEC have to keep up over the course of a year?
1: Well... uh, (laughs) And there's there's several, so we have to maintain uh, our parachute qualifications. We have to maintain our scuba diving qualification. We have to maintain the medical qualification. We have to do annual exercises for mountaineering, uh, winter and summer mountaineering. Uh, we have to also maintain, uh, what else do so we have to go? Uh, at one annual uh, survival exercise that we got to do every year and things may not have changed in the last five years but that was pretty much it so we have quarterly semi-annual and annual qualifications to maintain and that's not counting other stuff on the aircraft like on the chopper all your clearance calling all your hoisting all your equipment stuff on the hurt all your parachuting your equipment drops your your uh, your flight patterns, your search patterns, all this have always have to be done. So it's quite busy. If you're not doing
0: calls, you're doing training.
1: <laughs> Every time you go to work, you're training in something because if you're on standby, you're you're flying that day if the weather conditions uh, allow it. Uh, you're flying. You're going somewhere. And between the pilots, the flight engineers, and the Sartex, somebody needs something to be done. So you're going out after you've decided where lunch is going to be. <laughs> then the training gets in place. Nice.
0: Um, and then from 442, you went back to the school as uh, standards. You so think you were saying.
1: Yes. Uh, I, well, at the, when I was at the uh, shop, I got diagnosed with celiac disease, which pretty much ended my career because uh, they can't feed me and I can't eat the rations. Uh, so they, they brought me back to the school as the uh, senior instructor slash standard cell. And I had the privilege of running uh, one selection before I got out, which was pretty, uh, pretty cool to be the guy in charge of that whole process.
0: Yeah, you're definitely putting your thumbprint on the next generation of Sartex then if you're running the selection.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: Um, You talked about the mission with the lobster boat. Is there any other memorable calls that you've had?
1: Totally, Um, one was actually uh, when I saved a course mate's life during a uh, overturned vessel um, training here at the school in Comox. Uh, Dwayne Bryson was our course mate and he got stuck entangled inside the ladder of the overturned vessel, lost his mask. And by the time I was able to untangle him from the ladder because the first stage of his scuba tank was all stuck and his mask was gone. He had swallowed water, lost consciousness, and we managed to bring him back out, revive him, and then he survived with some uh, some brain damage at the time, which got progressively worse over the years. And uh, as uh, some of you have probably seen on Facebook and all that, Dwayne finally passed away a couple of days ago from you know from that injury. So this makes that mission even more special now.
0: Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, I know. Uh, I saw some stuff on that just recently. Yeah. Um, parachute missions. Uh, you mentioned the para roll for the SARTEC. Have you done uh, a good, memorable parachute
1: mission? Totally. Uh, there was uh, when I was still in training. I only have that one operational jump, but it was a good. Uh, it was a good one. We were called for a five person uh, plane crash north of Bagotville uh, in an area called Should They Pass, which is about 250 miles north of Quebec City. It's gone in the boonies. Uh, it was uh, a beaver plane with the, the pilot and four fishermen. They um, they got into a valley, they had some clouds, they lost their uh, tracking and they hit, they crashed upside down in, in the forest there. Uh, so we dispatched four Sartex uh, there. The, Sean and I jumped on one side of this creek on this what we thought was going to be a green patch of grass, and the other two guys did tree jumps on close to the plane, uh, and then we all met there. Uh, there was a lab coming from Trenton, and there was a Griffin from Baggettville that helped with the extraction. And uh, he crashed uh, probably around nine or ten in the morning, and then we found him at four in the afternoon, and uh, got them to the hospital probably by six at night. In the summer, that was July, so you can just imagine northern uh, Quebec with the black flies and all the, the the flying beast over there. These guys were pretty uh, pretty swollen and eating up alive. We had two. Uh, critically, uh, I'm going to call them REDS, that's all we call them, right, Uh, by medical uh, terms. And the funny thing with this is part of our protocol, uh, our medication, some of the narcotics that we have, we require um, authorization from uh, either an ER doctor or, you know, hospital to give more than what we're allowed by protocol. And one of the two uh, injured guy was uh, an actual ER doctor from Montreal. (laughs) So he had all the morphine he wanted because he gave us permission to give more.
0: (laughs) Uh, So, and uh, were you, did the, excuse me, did the Griffin and the lab split lifting people out to get you back? Or did you all end up in one uh, helicopter on the way back?
1: Uh, They split. Yeah. The, the, the lab was here first and they uh, picked up the, uh, the, uh, the reds, the two reds and two of the uh, less injured guys. And then the, when the Griffins showed up, we took the one least injured with me at the end and we made it to Bagotville Hospital.
0: Right on. Um, I know when we've chatted in the past, you've mentioned stuff about training trips like down to the States to go jumping, for instance. Um, is that common to have uh, training trips outside of Canada or in other places in Canada in order to do qualifications?
1: Uh, part of the uh, school program, uh, they go to Eloy, Arizona for the parachuting. Um, several reasons. Uh, the biggest reason is service serviceability of aircraft. We go there, we pay, and we're guaranteed to have a plane every day, all day. If they don't have one, they're just getting another. If When I did my jump phase here in Comox, we were at the mercy of the Buffalo serviceability. Uh, over there, it's a big desert, right? So there's lots of place to, uh, to mess up your landing patterns and still land safely without hitting buildings, power lines or anything else. I mean, the basic drop zone over there is a mile square of desert. So it's pretty easy to tune down uh, the students to for their accuracy landings. Uh, So that's why we go to Eloy. Uh, And the big difference with all that's when I graduated after a a full year of of training, I graduated with about 40 jumps and and we done like 30 of those on the jump phase. Now they come out of parachute phase uh, counting the the month in Arizona then the extra two weeks here in Comox for the confined space, the water jump and the night jump. They come out on average between 85 and 100 jumps right off the bat. So it makes them a lot more uh, a lot more confident jumpers, much better jumper than I used to be when I was finished. These guys can come in and right off the bat, they can be thrown in the you know at night over water confined areas with gear and uh, we're pretty confident they're going to hit the target
0: right on um you also mentioned scuba diving you go down to uh, the base just outside of victoria british columbia for that um what to what kind of uh, degree of scuba diving do you get trained in
1: so we used to be trained all the way to overturn vessel penetration which uh i'm pretty sure they don't do anymore uh That type of rescue diving was extremely risky. Uh, You can just imagine a boat that's flipped upside down middle of the Atlantic. You don't want to go in there unless it's stabilized and safe to do so. You don't want to sink with the ship. And this is where we injured a lot of guys, uh, well, two of the most guys in training also. So even the training part was very risky, Uh, but uh, overall money speaks and they decided to take that qualification away from us. But the diving still goes on. Uh, So every year uh, we have dive qualification that we have to maintain. And so every year well, they have quarterlies and semi-annual the same as all the other stuff that we have. But every year they go now to Key West and it's also a mental health break slash checkup slash resets. So we go there. Do you know um, a lot more diving because you can dive in a week, you can dive a lot more there than we can here in three months of winter. And uh, they also bring uh, staff from Ottawa, social workers, psychiatrists, and they do mass briefing and uh, uh, very individual interviews to make sure that the boys are, you know, mentally fit for the job and have a good reset. And if there's anything that needs to take action, uh, that's where it starts from.
0: Well, oh, that's that's a, it's a very interesting, you know, idea, like getting a training exercise and incorporating mental health into it. I know a few other professions I've worked in that should look at something along those lines.
1: Yeah, totally. Like Sartek, we didn't use that mental health. Like when, uh, the, uh, the cell in Ottawa was tasked to to do something for us. They came to all the shop. They they went to see the Navy SEALs, you know, RCMPs and Delta Force and all these specialized forces in the military and uh, in NATO. And their program is now called Road to Mental Readiness. And it's even part of the basic course now. And they have that on the basic. There's a little bit when they come for med research and there's the annual program because uh, when they ask us, what do you do when, you know, you live something very stressful and how do you guys cope or how do you guys deal with it? And she didn't like my answer at a time when I told her that we would just get drunk with the team lead and go home. So now a lot has changed. I'm sure this still happens somewhere, but now the programs are out, the supports are out, the families are involved, which is a, a way, way better than what it used to be.
0: Right on. Uh, last little bit for me. Uh, SAR tax in Canada predominantly been a domestic trade, predominantly tasked with uh, air and humanitarian search and rescue. But I know now that there has been some trips to, like, some of the hurricane or the, sorry, the earthquake, I think, down in Haiti, was it, that you, that you were deployed down to?
1: Yep, yep.
0: Um, uh, go ahead. So, I,
1: so Haiti was uh, – uh, was just a good timing, uh, if we can say that, Uh, because the plane was loaded with the Griffins helicopter and the rescue gear and everything that was to come to the Olympics at the time. Uh, And they said, well, we're ready. And then uh, that earthquake happened and they diverted the whole team and all that gear that was going to come and support the Olympics here in Comox down there with there was four Sartex uh, at the time also. it was the timing was perfect. The job that they did over there was just phenomenal, uh, and uh, that opened up the door for other stuff. So now we had guys after that going to do some boat uh, and and helicopter training in Jamaica. Uh, we've had decks to go to um, um, Afghanistan after that in, into out of postings uh, operations. They didn't go as Sartex, but they went as uh, operations managers and different taskings. So yeah, we do have a little bit more of a uh, international uh, opportunities that we can say now.
0: Right on. Um, Is there anything else you want to add to this?
1: Um, Not from my career standpoint. But uh, I just like to add that companies like you guys, Ronan, who are very uh, pro vets, uh, are doing great, great things to support the the veterans coming out and looking for second jobs. Uh, Like for your fire course is one of the primary example. Uh, So I just want to take two minutes to say thank you to you and all your uh, your co-bosses that support us and, you know, make sure that we're well taken care of. So that's uh, that's always great to see.
0: Thanks, Steph. I appreciate that. But uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, I think folks are really going to appreciate listening to this one.
1: Sounds good. It was a pleasure.